This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. How are we doing? I'm so happy you are listening. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the extremely handsome Mr. Simon Belanger with his extremely nice new microphone and cool setup. Dude, you, I am such a peasant compared to you. You just look legit, and I am like, there's like a lizard behind me. Yeah, I mean, it's getting there. I just need to finish a couple panels um, that I use uh, with uh, one of our real estate sponsors, Sonopan. Um, and the audio is going to be even better, but uh, definitely improved. And I don't have to worry about either a barking dog or crying baby. <laughs> yeah, we both have our own challenges, right? Like, <laughs> but you've, you've mostly solved that. There is a gigantic lizard outside of my door that I'm like, I'm like a bit afraid to leave the Airbnb. It, it, I'm exaggerating for sure, but we're talking about like half the size of a Komodo dragon. Like no joke. That's how big the lizards are here. <laughs> and I'm sure they're chill, but I don't know that, man. Like, I, like what, what? it just stares at me. Anyways, on we go. The show goes on, folks. And uh, this is one of our Monday releases. The show comes out. Mondays and Thursdays, if you're new here in 2023. Today, we're going to talk about history. We're going to talk about home bias. You're going to talk about starting positions. And then I'm going to do a very shallow dive on a very interesting company that uh, we have never, ever talked about on the history of the podcast. So you'll have to stay tuned for that. I'm going to start with a quote that I saw from this, I guess, Instagram account called Inside History. And it's about history, but it's context for the stock market. And the reason for that is, someone, how often do you hear like, oh man, I can't be in the market. The market's too crazy right now. Like, do you, do you hear that from like the Uber driver, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people, I think... There's a lot of people that have that trader mentality. And of course, uh, without getting too much in the psychology of investing, the um, the loss aversion or like when you lose money on investment, it hurts way more than making the same amount of money. Right. So I think that probably that instinct probably kicks in for a lot of people. Yeah. And, and it's it's a parallel for history. The you like the markets. It's always like things are so crazy right now. Like what's happening to the world? Like what, what's with the market lately, all this stuff. And if you zoom out and get some context of history, we live in a pretty good time. All right. Here's the quote from inside history for a small amount of perspective at this moment. Imagine you were born in 1900 when you are 14 world war one starts and ends on your 18th birthday with 22 million people killed. Later in the year, a Spanish flu epidemic hits the planet and runs until you are 20. 50 million people die in those two years. Yes, 50 million. When you're 29, the Great Depression hits. Unemployment hits 25%. Global GDP drops 27%, and that runs until you are age 33. The country nearly collapses along with the world economy. When you turn 39... World War II starts. You aren't even over the hill yet. 
When you're 41, the U.S. is fully pulled into World War II. Between your 39th and 45th birthday, 75 million people perish in the war and the Holocaust kills 12 million. At 52, the Korean War starts and 5 million killed. At 64, Vietnam War begins and it doesn't end for many years. 4 million people die. Approaching your 62nd birthday, you have the Cuban Missile Crisis, a tipping point in the Cold War. Life on our planet as we know it could have ended. Great leaders prevented that from happening. As you turn 75, the Vietnam War finally ends. Think of everyone on the planet born in 1900. How do you survive all of that? A kid in 1985 didn't think their 85-year-old grandparent understood how hard their school was. Yet those grandparents and now great-grandparents survive through everything listed above. Perspective is an amazing art. I love this because, I mean, look at everything that we've endured uh, and look at everything businesses have endured. And it's important to zoom out and get some context um, when you think, you know, things are a little crazy or... You know, this is the worst thing that could ever face the market. High inflation, recession fears, COVID hangover. Like the list goes on and on and on. And none of it is a new concept. We are used to adversity. I just thought that this was a great little little passage. Yeah. And I mean, look, there's always going to be something going on. The You know, the reality is there is war pretty much going on all the time. I know that kind of focuses on this a, a bit more. And uh, you have to be able to not, you know, put too much stock into it in terms of getting the fear taking over your emotions and then potentially not investing. Uh, You have to keep in mind that, you know, for the long run, yes, there might be some turbulence in the short, medium term. But for the long run, if you have invested in either an index ETF or a a broad-based ETF, I mean, or even uh, some really good companies like we do, or a mix of both like I do, you'll you'll be fine in the long run. You just have to remember that and not get too caught up in what may be going on in the news, for example. Very well said. All right, let's uh, hit your first topic of the day. Yeah, no, my first topic here, so... I started a position recently. I don't know if I talked about it on the podcast. I don't think so. So this would be the the first time. So I recently started a position in Allied Property REIT. It was a company I talked... You mentioned that. Did I? I I think you talked about it. I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, you've talked... You talked about Allied a bunch. And then in one of the episodes, you did mention that you did start a position. Okay. I do remember that. Yeah, I'm just getting old and my memory's fading, I guess. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, so it is a a small position or, you know, probably a third of what I would want it to be when it's uh, fully completed. I most likely would have added between the time I started the position in early December and now. But the reason why I kind of waited and I want to see what exactly happens is because the news came out that Shopify was backing out or did not want to lease uh, the property uh, one of the properties that they had signed up to lease uh, with Allied Property REIT along with RioCan so that's at the well so they do not want that space anymore 
And, you know, that's a bit concerning. There just wasn't a whole lot of information behind it. So I wanted to take a step back. I didn't want to sell my position because it doesn't really change uh, the whole premise per se. Because keep in mind, this is about 1.5% of the overall leasable area that Allied has. So it is a relatively small percent percentage but it is something to also keep in mind because it's a pretty significant tenant uh, for them they do at least some other space from allied property REIT and I just want to understand what management is saying for the most part recently management has said from allied and I've listened to recent calls is that even though there is some turbulence in the tech space, they haven't seen that really impact the demand for their real estate. Um, they, From the talks they had had, they didn't see it as a major headwind going forward. Of course, we talked recently about some tech layoffs and, you know, there might be some kind of validity in terms of tech space facing some headwinds going forward but all I wanted to say is look sometimes you may start a position your thesis might be very good and then something kind of happens a curveball this is not necessarily thesis changing for me but I just want to wait until they come out with their next earnings calls to just have a better sense of what's happening and you know personally I still think that business or office real estate will you know get back to not necessarily where it was in 2019 before the pandemic I think we'll get back to something fairly close to it but like I've said before I think this will probably take at least a couple of years if not up to five years as businesses kind of shift to a remote model to a more kind of hybrid model where you're required to be in the office for a couple of days or three days a week. Um, so you'll see more and more of that less and less fully remote. And what's what's hap what happens usually if you're in a hybrid model is, you know, you even if you're asking people to come in the office 50% of their time, it's not like you'll necessarily need 50% less office real estate, right? Because a lot of people will probably come in from Tuesday to Thursday, a lot of people not wanting to come in on the Friday, for example. So you may downsize a little bit, but maybe not to the extent of your hybrid work model. So that's that's the approach I'm taking from now. Um, there are some risk in allied property, Reed. It's, it's, you know, it's, there's a reason why it's yielding so much is because there are some big uncertainties when it be comes to office real estate going forward. But I'm of the opinion that it should pick back up in the uh, long term. But of course, I could be wrong here. And I think short term, there could be some headwinds. But given the Shopify news that came out and how significant it could be for them uh, going forward, I just want to have a bit more information from management here. This was the question mark that I had when you first said it was an interesting idea on your radar was all eyes on the well, that development and the tenants going in there. And if, if Shopify was going to fully, there was some questions around Shopify for sure. And then after that recording, the news broke. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think the important takeaway of your segment here is like, what do you what do you do in that situation and for you it is not breaking the thesis it's just it, it's just you're closely looking at it and this is nothing that was outside of the realms of possibilities when you started the position like you you fully knew that going yeah. in 
It didn't blindside you. No, exactly. And I suspect that management will say that Shopify signed a lease and they are uh, expected to pay that lease, um, the rent that comes with that lease. That's what I've seen. I've seen some information come out, not officially from Allied or RioCan, um, but I suspect this is the case. And apparently Shopify is trying to sublease it. So um, it sounds like Shopify probably doesn't have much leeway. But again, it'll be interesting, even if it, that's the case. I just want to hear what they have to say in terms of the outlook, right? Because the Shopify backing out is that a symptom of potentially what's going to be happening in the uh, tech space, which is a very large portion of their tenant base? So I think there's a, a whole lot of things to consider here. But at the same time, right, um, there is some safety here in the dividend being paid. Uh, it's not a huge payout ratio for a REIT. So there is some flexibility there. They recently hiked their dividend a little bit. Um, so I think there's definitely some positives as well for, for Allied. I am personally very bullish on the hybrid model. I think it's brilliant. I think that's exactly what most people want. Um, and maybe that's just my opinion, but I think it's brilliant because I'll give you an example. Like right now, our team works remote fully, but we do have an office space in Toronto where we can go, uh, we can meet there, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, like not a lot. Like, it's not like we have to be there one day a week or anything like that, two days a week, nothing like that. But when there is something that we need to fix, we need to work on, we need to hash out a plan, we need to do training, or we just want to meet face to face and kind of build culture. I think it's brilliant because then when you're working remotely, you're kind of more effective after having some of those face to face conversations. But people and high-skilled workers in this economy want the flexibility of remote. And I fully understand that. I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. So I, I'm bullish on the hybrid model. I guess these office REITs just have to navigate something that is different. It is not like their business is dead. It's just very different. And as you know, the market hates different, right? Like they hate uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think right now, a lot of them are almost being priced as if like, you know, everyone's going remote. Uh, like I mentioned, I think it's pro it's definitely somewhere in between where we were before and fully remote. And I think the market is scared because I think overall in the office real estate uh, space, I think vacancy as a whole is around 15%, which is uh, very high and I'm just going on memory here but I know that Allied their vacancy is around 8% so they are doing much better than the uh, their competitors in general so um, something to keep in mind obviously if you want to start positioning them don't start one just because I started one do your due diligence here don't get uh, hypnotized by the yield it is a nice yield um, I concede that that's for sure but you have to have conviction in it if you're going to put some money in Let's talk about home bias. I pulled up some data and it is sourced from Charles Schwab Macro Bond World Federation of Exchanges, IMF and World Bank as of, uh, what is that, October of 2022. And it stats out every country's home bias, which is basically the percentage of domestic equity allocation of their home country. So 
here we have statted out along this this line of uh, in this bar chart is every single country in this data set, and so I'm pretty hard on the Canadians and the listeners of the podcast about being extremely home biased, and I've come to realize that we're actually not that bad because home bias is a problem that exists almost everywhere. Like if you look here. India, for instance, has over 95% allocation to domestic equities. That is gigantic. Egypt, over 90%. Kuwait, China, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, all over 90%. It goes the middle section there, the United States is at like 75%, which makes complete sense to me. I mean, these are the, this is the home of global large cap businesses. So you're getting global exposure by just owning U.S. securities. So I'm not so worried about that. And then way down here, actually, Canada slots in at just below 50%, which matches the data that we saw uh, yesterday when we were recording about the TD Bank thing. They had about 45% of allocation to domestic equities in Canada. So this is saying, huh, we're actually not that bad on the world scale of home bias. So... That message has come through that we probably shouldn't just be all allocated to Canadian securities, but that's uh, still too high, in my opinion. It, it, basically, what I'm saying is everyone has home bias that is way too high, and I'll exclude the U.S. from uh, from that data set. Yeah, yeah. The U.S. Uh, the U.S. obviously element is interesting for Canada. I think that's probably one of the reason why we're not so bad compared to other countries. And I would go ahead and I don't know all of these countries all that well, but I will assume that the ones that are in like, you know, be upwards of 90 percent there's most likely restrictions on investing in foreign stocks in those countries i know china has some uh so yeah good point yeah very good point there so i think you have to take that into account and canada i mean i think the fact that we're so close to the u.s their neighbors right and it's so easy on your broker to buy u.s stocks for us i don't know how easy or hard it is for other countries i think that probably helps lower that for canadian but again you have to keep in mind that, you know, even at 50%, it's still alarmingly high, <laughs> in my opinion. But um, it's a good data set. It's interesting. But definitely, you know, I have to keep in mind that some countries just impose restrictions. And as uh, your father said, uh, shout out to Brad. He, uh, <laughs> He's he going to love that we're... shout out, by the way. I know. He's oh, going to love that. He's... Oh, when man. did he text us about the, the RSP restrictions back in the day? Yeah. I think there was like uh, 15, 20 years ago, there were restrictions as to... Uh, uh, the amount of the percentage of equities, I think, uh, that you could have in Canadian stocks in your RSP. So uh, that probably skewed that, uh, you know, prior to recently for Canadians, definitely. I mean, I'd have to go back. I don't, I'm just going on memory, but you remember what I was, I'm talking about, right? Yeah. And, and it's a good point too, right? Because even if you look at withholding tax implications, there's just a lot of benefit taxation wise, even here in certain accounts to own domestic stocks so i get it i fully get it i still think this is too high uh, across the board but uh that is the data 
No, definitely interesting. And then the next segment here, um, I wanted to talk about this for a little bit of time because uh, I was playing with the uh, screener on stratosphere.io and I thought it would be a good topic to discuss because we've had questions over the time where people are using screeners. I know we had someone recently uh, on Twitter reach out to us asking, well, you know, this company keeps coming up, like the P is super low, they're growing quickly, profits are growing, like am I missing something? Um, and I think it's important to remember that screeners are useful for discovering companies that may not be on your radar and meet a set of requirement that you're looking for in a business. So when you have a good screener, you can really set it to, you know, meet what you're looking for. And that's why I like Stratosphere is that there's a lot of different metrics that you can use here. So some of the things you can screen in. Dude, there's like hundreds of metrics. Exactly. And I'm just going to shoot like about seven or eight here, but there is way, way more you can do. So for example, are you looking for value or growth stock? So you can kind of tweak it to tailor to what you're you're looking for a bit more are you looking for a specific valuation for example like a price to earnings ratio or price to free cash flow are you looking for companies that are a certain size maybe you're looking for a small cap company that's under you know a billion in market cap maybe you're looking for a more stable more mature company that's trade is over 10 15 20 billion market cap you can screen on that are you looking for companies that are buying back stocks so their shares actually decline over time? You can screen on that as well. Are you looking for profitable companies? Are you looking for companies that pay a dividend? You can even specify, you know, a certain yield if you're looking for, you know, above or a range, you know, above 2% or between 2 and 4%, you could do that as well. Or are you looking for businesses in a specific sectors? So those are just some examples that you can screen on. And the point I wanted to make here is that you can really tailor a screener to what you're looking for in a business. So I just did one recently. So I just took a few few elements and it wasn't it should have been a little more uh, targeted because I ended up with too many results. And I'll talk about that in a second. Now, I use less than 100 billion in market cap. I use 5% re revenue growth year over year, 5% free cash flow growth year over year and for both of these I also put positive growth over the past three years I put negative growth for shares outstanding so I'm looking for a company that's doing some buybacks here return on invested capital over 10% and the price to free cash flow under 20 now the issue with that screen is like I said give me a whole lot of name because it doesn't have the most kind of stringent requirements so an easy solution you can do for that is just Either you add more data points or you tighten certain criteria to lower the total amount of companies. For example, you could put in a return on invested capital of 15% instead of 10 or a higher growth rate or kind of a narrower market cap, for example. So these are all things you can do. Personally, I like it to be under 20 businesses as a result because then it just becomes too many businesses to start you know having a look into them but once i've got that good started point then i can start my research on those companies and i think that's really important and i i'm sure you'll you'll say the same thing here like screeners is a starting point for research you yes. shouldn't 100 percent exactly so you should not buy a company just because it meets your screener your screening criteria because it's you know you could be missing a whole lot of things like i didn't talk about debt here but you can screen on that as well but just you know 
get those companies that meet those criterias and then start looking at their financials, start listening to some calls if everything you're starting to read on makes sense. And it just it's just an extra tool in your toolbox, basically. It is a wonderful tool in the start of the idea ideation phase or just trying to build out like an investable universe of companies to do more research on. And, and that includes like, Okay, what does the company actually do? Because that that's not in a screener. It's not, exactly. It's not like that's explain. It. Mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't help you explain what the company does to a five year old uh, by using a screener. But it does help you get an investable universe, like the 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 characteristics that you were talking about. So, like to summarize this, the screener you, you were throwing up, you're like, okay, I don't want it to be a mega cap company, so it's got to be less than a hundred billion. So that's screening for size. You're saying, okay, I want it to at least be growing a little bit, at least a little bit on both the top line and profits. They've had, they've demonstrated they do buybacks. There's a certain valuation cap on here, and they've demonstrated a decent double digit ROIC. Those are all like pretty basic criteria. So you're going to get lots of, lots of results. Oh, yeah. But those are great characteristics you want to see in businesses um like size aside because that, that's that's subjective but the other yeah. ones like those are awesome criteria to see and it helps you bring to a universe of companies that are all of a sudden manageable to do some research on that's the point right yeah exactly and there's so many criterias right so you can really tailor it to what you're looking for i mean you know, you could do the, the kind of same type of screener I use and just throw in a dividend in there as well, right? It'll narrow the, the companies down. And actually, I wanted to mention uh, this we haven't prepared in terms of note. But uh, you know the company that kept coming up? With which, which one? It's it's AutoZone. Oh, yeah. AutoZone. Yeah. Yeah. It's been uh, like I, I was familiar with it, but my God, it's been uh, quite the compounder. huh? It's been one of the best compounders. Um, yeah. Dude, amazing. there's a bunch of those automotive uh, businesses that have been enrolled, like O'Reilly, Copart, AutoZone. They've all been some of the best compounders literally in the entire S&P 500. It's yeah, incredible. No, I, I couldn't believe it when I saw it. And I just kind of quickly look at AutoZone because I was just curious here to to see what it looked like. And I realized that they own also most of their uh, real estate and they don't do uh, franchises. So these are all company owned stores. Just that's like five minutes looking at the investor relations side, but just that's just an example of the type of companies like without this, I would never thought of even looking at AutoZone. Yeah, good point. Uh, Another one for you to look up if you think that that's an interesting idea is Copart, uh, ticker CPRT. Another very interesting and mega winner, mega compounder that uh, keeps getting it done. Do you want to do a? Do you should you and I build a screen for the next show? We'll like kind of build maybe like five to ten things we like seeing in each company and just go over the results. Yeah. Yeah, we could do a show on that. Uh, basically, just build. We could each build kind of a screen and maybe talk about like what. Uh, the top five results or something like that. Yeah, spit, see what it spits out yeah. and, and <laughs> see how we would interpret it. All right, let, let's put that in the doc for uh, for the next episode. We'll run a screen. Very fun. That's a fun episode idea. All right, last part of 
today's show, I'm going to do a shallow dive on an interesting idea, a name we've never discussed on the podcast, and a name that is less than $1 billion in market cap. So not very often we talk about these smaller names. And let me bring this idea to you, my man. It is called Winmark, okay? It is a beautifully profitable franchise model. And these are brands you will surely know, but you may not know they are all tucked into a holding company called Winmark that has been a ultra winner. The stock has been a 20-bagger, 20xing its value since 2009. The last last year in 2022, the market sucked. The stock market equities were down 19%, and Winmark was up 5%. So huge outperformance, very resilient. And here's the kicker. It's only $800 million in market cap. Yet, the stock IPO'd 30 years ago in 1993. Okay, so the business. Did have you ever bought anything from Play It Again Sports? I uh, uh not that one specifically, but I've bought um like a local shop on the Quebec side that does similar things. So I, I'm familiar with them at least, yeah. Like reselling of, of Sport, sports equipment. goods. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I I think I've bought in a pair of skates there. I need I needed some for Shinny one day, like outdoor <laughs> hockey. And I didn't have any. I went to play it against sports. I bought these awesome old tax skates for like 30 bucks. And uh, at the time, they were probably the best skates you could buy. But that's that's the whole idea. They're, they're, they're resellers. So yeah. Winmark calls themselves the resale company. They own five franchises that operate on a resale model. And many of them will be brands y'all already know, maybe even shop at, but at least seen in some strip malls driving down the road. Plato's Closet, that's one I'm sure you know, it buys and sells clothing and accessories for the teenager and young adult market. Once Upon a Child buys and sells used new children's clothes. Has, has your daughter got anything from Once Upon a Child or are you, you getting all that new, new Ferrari of, of baby stuff? Uh, we're getting, I mean, we got most of it new mostly because we've had so many gifts from people. True. So, uh, you know, having, uh, having only, uh, we're both only children. So, um, you know, it's the first granddaughter. So clearly she's pretty spoiled. So we've been pretty lucky for that. And when we went to the States, we got some really good deals at Target, like really cheap, like five bucks each, uh, new stuff. So we've been... Not getting used for the most part, but getting some really good deals on the new stuff. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Well, once upon a child, stop in there, do a channel check for me because uh, I'm <laughs> okay. not at the target, target demographic at the moment. Play it again, sports, which we just talked about, buys, sells, trades, consigns, used in new sporting goods, equipment, uh, sports, fitness, ski, snowboard, golf, everything. I actually think I bought an old driver from uh, play it against like an old tailor-made driver from there one time for a pretty good deal style encore now i don't know this one uh women's apparel shoes and accessory never seen that might be in the u.s only or i just haven't been paying attention and music go round which is resale of musical instruments speakers amps that kind of whole thing also don't know that one but uh <laughs> maybe they're in the u.s is this the best business model ever people give you free shit and you sell it Like the margins are insane from Winmark. And of course, it's a franchise model. So you're going to see some nutty margins. But even on the 
operator of the franchisee, the margins are ridiculous. When you look at Winmark at the Hold Co., 95, 94% gross margins, 66% operating margins, and above 50% net margins. And they have ticked up steadily since 1993 on the data. It goes all the way back on stratosphere.io. You can see I graphed them all out there with the nice little data labels. Very sexy. Um, on a franchise model, like people sell you this stuff for pennies and you turn around and sell it for dollars. And you set your own prices on the franchise level, so the margins can be amazing. Let me let me get anecdotal here for you for a second. My girlfriend bring, brings bags on bags of very nice clothes that are like hardly really worn. And she brings them to Plato's Closet regularly because she gets sent stuff on the daily because she's sponsored by all these clothing brands to model them. And this is way, my way of flexing everyone on the podcast that uh, I have a hot girlfriend and she's way out of my league. But you cannot possibly keep it all. Like, it's highly wasteful, but hey, at least at least resale is an ESG-friendly option, right? So they got to put that in the investor presentation. Very ESG on this resale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's a good business model, and I think it should do well, especially, you know, we keep... E- hearing the R award, right? Recession, that and the I award. So uh, I think a lot of people will probably turn to these kind of stores if they're in a pinch, right? Or their kids need to, they're trying a new sport. I, I know I would, for example, if Sophia wants to try like, you know, skating or hockey or whatever it is, I am not buying new equipment. I'm going to buy stuff used and maybe at some point, if you know for sure that uh, it's going to be a long-term thing, you can buy newer stuff. But uh, no, it's very, I think it's very recession proof too. It is. I, I, I wholly agree on that. And pretty nice ticket size as well on the stuff they sell. So that's basically how the model works, right? You, you take stuff for pennies and you sell it for dollars. Can I interest you in the ROICs on this business? I had to triple check, do multiple calculations that like, I looked on Stratosphere and I'm like, whoa. Like, make sure these are all right. ROICs are over 100% consistently, which is frame-breaking numbers. Like, that's not normal. And that's because it's so capital light with the franchise model that they're able to achieve those returns. Renewal rates are so low. Um, sorry, turnover is so low is renewal rates are super high. Like, the percent that churns is very, very low with the franchisees. And I grabbed this from a friend of mine who wrote an article on it. I'd shut him out, but he'd probably get in trouble with his uh, <laughs> with his compliance team. Uh, so I wouldn't do that to the guys and his internal proprietary stuff. But he says here, Winmark's renewal rates even more incredible is that their contracts are their contracts are based on ten year contracts with five percent royalty rates. They have elite renewal rates despite having the same length contracts as other industries. To play this out on a human level, business owners are choosing to spend 20, 30, and 40 plus years of working with Winmark. Pretty pretty cool. Um, and the CEO of taking the helm, Brett Hefes, has seemed to have that dog in him, dude. This guy has that dog in him. He has massively boost margins, divested the leasing business, and uh, very disciplined capital allocation. And so I, I was looking into the leasing business, and they divest, they divested the leasing business for the reasons of 
It's much more capital intensive. Uh, it's non-core and has greater competition. So I think all of those make sense. And the resale, the resale business has way higher margins to begin with. So what was the leasing business exactly? I believe what it was, was leasing to the franchisees and other people in the strip mall. I do not know for sure. Okay. Okay. No, I was just curious. And uh, if people are wondering if there's a little bit of delay here is because we had to shut down the video because uh, the internet is so good in Costa Rica. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Probably should have said that at the beginning. Yeah. The the internet here is, uh, you know, they're doing their best. All right. It just randomly, it randomly just goes away. But hey, um, beautiful nature. Who needs the internet when you got beautiful nature? It's better in some place than other. So yes, they divested that, and uh, it it represented before about fourteen percent of the total revs. And uh, yeah, so not bad. Now there's obviously lots more to uncover. It's a small cap. There's brands people know, or, but maybe you have never connected the dots. How much bigger can it get? I don't know. And, and store openings are percentage, probably single digits year over year, growing organically a few percentage points a year. So nothing frame-breaking here on the growth. People who have been investors prior have gotten huge margin expansion. But this thing trades so cheap, it pays a nice dividend. They can keep growing the dividend. It prints cash. The management team seems to be really solid. I think it continues to do pretty well from here. I, I don't think you can expect another 20-bagger, but uh, it's it's an interesting business that many of you probably have, have seen but never connected the dots. Yeah, and don't forget, it pays a dividend for those interested. It's actually a growing dividend, too. I was looking that up while uh, you it's were talking. It's a very growing yeah, dividend. Yeah, they kind of splash with a special dividend every now and then, it looks like. Yep, they do. They uh, Every once in a while, throw a pretty hefty uh, special div. Yeah. And uh, I'm looking here on Stratosphere. On the dividend section now, I don't know if you've seen, but you can see the dividend graphed out over time as well. Yeah, I've seen and, it. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. And the special dividends, you like every once in a while, it looks like the graph's broken, but it's just a company yeah. like this throwing out a huge chunk of change every couple of years. Yeah, and just uh, for people, maybe that's something interesting to, to talk about. I know we have before, but when you look at dividend yield for a a company you might be investing in uh, just be careful is if there's been some special dividends because oftentimes depending on where you're looking at the data it may actually skew the uh, dividend yield because they'll include that special dividend and a special dividend it is in the name does not always happen whereas you really want to look at the quarterly dividend if they're paying it regularly that'll give you a better idea of what kind of income you can get from it yeah i i wholeheartedly agree usually the best way to do it is to just look at regular dividend per share yeah and then against the share price that's because if you look at dividends paid on the cash flow statement (laughs) um and there's the the special div yeah you're gonna get a different number but again special divs are not that common that's why it's nice to see it kind of visually to see if this is a company that pays them and it's very obvious when there's the big spikes yeah exactly and you know what this is uh, definitely requires more um research on my part but i at first glance it looks like a really interesting play if you need you need a company in your portfolio that will weather kind of all different kind of economic environment. 
that is probably it. It probably, obviously, it won't grow as quickly when times are good, but it'll probably perform way better than other stocks when times are not as good and, you know, and you're in a recession and things like that. This is a great alternative for people uh, versus buying new things. They can go and buy the used one and just, you know, stretch their money a bit longer. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I mean, it's pretty resilient from that perspective. And again, this is just a shallow dive into the business. I have a lot more to learn, but there is obviously something interesting here to look at. And I'm I'm trying this year to bring some new ideas to the pod that are completely undiscovered, not by just like us, but undiscovered just across the board. Anything under a billion in market cap, like for a US listing, just not that many people are looking at it. Like a very small select people, a number of investors are actually regularly looking for things under a billion in market cap, especially when it comes to smart money and big funds. Like they're just completely constrained out of it. And so that, that could be probably the advantage of, of smaller investors and why so many smaller investors love looking and hunting in micro cap land because we're talking about companies that no one's looking at, like, like hardly hardly any large fund managers looking at it. doesn't come across their screens. Their analyst doesn't bring it to them. They're never going to be looking at it. Yeah, and it goes back to the screener, right? You can screen based on that. Maybe you just want a company that's between 200 million market cap to 1 billion. Um, that's going to fly under the radar, like you said, for most funds, unless there's fund that specifically invests in small cap. Right. Um, aside from that, I mean, they just can't own it because it would, uh, it, there would be some disclosure problems or regulatory issues. They would own too much of the company that's right. to make the needle move in their fund. So that's why, you know, we talk about Buffett all the time, right? That's why Buffett, when he makes a move, it's usually a it looks like a massive move to most people, but it actually, for the most part, it's like barely needle moving, even if it's like 10 billion invested because they have so much, uh, you know, they, they have so much ownership in different company. And I, I, I kind of want to say asset under management, but it's a different model, but you know what I mean, right? So they have so much where, and it's a small fraction of their cash pile. <laughs> exactly. So they have to make investments that are several billion dollars to move the needle. Like Buffett, if he invested a hundred million dollars in a company with Berkshire, I mean, okay, it would 10x, it would not move the needle for them. So that's that's just the yeah. reality, right? And and Buffett's talked about that extensively. He's like, oh man, if I could, if only I could go back to the days where I could compound, uh, you know. 30% plus when I was managing a small amount of money. He's like, I, I bet you any, he's like, he's said with confidence that he could hit those numbers again with smaller amounts of money. And I, I, I mean, who's, who's to bet against that? I mean, he's, he's Buffett, right? So that's uh, pretty cool. Um, let's leave it at that. Great episode. I like this one a lot, actually. Uh, let's, let's do some more screens. Cause I, I, I think doing some more, Idea generation is good content for the pod. It helps expand our minds, our, our universe, and then gives people lots of good ideas for the pod too. And just to double click on like this thing being an 800 million in market cap, that's not a small business, right? Like it's small in the realm of the universe of publicly traded 
securities, right? Or like yeah. things that people are are looking at regularly. But if you have a friend that had a, owned wholeheartedly an eight hundred million dollar business, they're like they're like God in terms of wealth. Like this is a gigantic business, right? Huge, yeah. huge business. Yeah, exactly. But when it's up against you know <laughs> Apple, Microsoft. <laughs> couple trillion in market cap it looks like a little baby and that sounds inherently it sounds inherently risky but that might not be true yeah yeah if you have a friend that owns like a business this large and uh, they're inviting you to vegas they better be paying for your trip i'll just say that (laughs) (laughs) yeah good point thanks so much for listening to today's episode we appreciate you very very much and uh if you have not rated the show then that would be amazing if you could do so. We have been getting so many five-star reviews both on Spotify and Apple, and then there's been some random reviews on Apple that are just like not very nice and also not true. So I don't know if they're troll or just like other podcasts trying to compete with us. I don't know. So uh, if you can dilute those crappy uh, statements by giving us a five-star and writing something nice on Apple Podcasts, that would be uh, very much appreciated. It helps us grow the show. helps more people find it. And it helps our egos, of course, duh. So go ahead and do that. As well as jointci.com. Every single month on jointci.com, we have our monthly portfolio updates. It's our actual portfolios updated to the percentages, our thoughts on what we're doing. Uh, sometimes we're doing lots. Sometimes we're not doing much usually not doing much, but that's important context for listeners of the pods. That is at jointci.com. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.